Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We're headed to the home stretch of football season and basketball is in full swing. And BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the action this year. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network Except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is a wonderful, wonderful Wednesday here on the podcast. We have got a great show planned for you today. We're going to talk about something interesting that I saw in the news yesterday surrounding the NFL and how we talk about CTE in the 2020s, because CTE's been around for about a decade now. It's interesting the way that we talk about it now that all the science is out there, all the information we're going to have, or at least we've had for years, is out there. It's interesting how we discuss it. We'll get to that in a bit. But for our classic A block here on the podcast, we have a conversation about Stefan Curry, which is a topic I love talking about, as our buddy DSD can attest. We love talking about Steph Curry, and we love talking about Kevin Durant psychology. It's two of our most fascinating topics, and they are fascinating because Steph Curry and Kevin Durant are the faces of their generation. Like, the generation that entered their prime of, like, 26 to 31 between 2016 and 2020 those guys are the Steph Curry generation most of them were drafted the Steph Curry and Kevin Durant generation most of them were drafted between like 2007 and 2011 with Dame Lillard in 2012 because Dame Lillard was really old when he was drafted all of that makes up a generation of stars that we think of when we think of the NBA like when when people talk about the young stars coming up Giannis Jokic Anthony Davis Joel Embiid, we still talk about them as young stars even as they're now into their primes because they aren't coming from a generation that we've seen for the past two decades, or not two decades, for the past five years be the faces of the NBA. Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, guys that we know are going to be Hall of Famers. And Steph Curry is the face of that generation along with Kevin Durant. Both of them are transcendent stars that by any definition of the sport, they're going to be like top 10 players when we have conversations all time about them. Players that are looked up to the way Kobe Bryant ran a generation, the way Shaquille O'Neal ran a generation, and Tim Duncan and Michael Jordan and 
LeBron James in the last generation before Steph and KD, even though LeBron James is still playing, most of his generation is retired now. And so Steph and Kevin Durant and company are now headed into the age where they are becoming the legends of the sport. Even as Kevin Durant still feels like he's in the back end of his prime and can still still might be the best player in the world, it's either him or Giannis or Steph, those are the generational talents that are either just entering their prime, in the case of Giannis, won a championship, two MVPs, 26 years old, or exiting their primes, Kevin Durant, 33, Steph Curry, 33, and... Steph Curry, by the time you're listening to this, will have broken Ray Allen's three-point record, which is usually something reserved for old-timer legends of the sport who have played a long time because it's really, really hard to break these all-time records or even get close to breaking the all-time records. Like, Frank Gore powered three yards at a time through, like, five seasons at the end of his career to try and get close to the Emmett Smith record and he didn't even get close he's now going to go box this weekend against Darren Williams on a Triller fight card he's de facto retired from the NFL he kept going for years and years and years trying to get to that record and he only got to third like it's so hard to break some of these records and yet Steph Curry in the middle of his prime is breaking the record which brought up Two things that I wanted to talk about with Steph Curry, because we've done podcasts on Steph Curry before. If you go back to a podcast we did, I think the first week of March this year, we talked about Steph Curry and the road back for him for the Golden State Warriors. This was before they ended up getting eliminated. We fast forward to the playoffs last year when they were going up against LeBron in the play-in game, and we talked about how enjoy this moment while we have it because there's no guarantee that we're going to have LeBron versus Steph Curry legend matchups again as these guys start to age out. It might happen again. We might get to see Kevin Durant versus Steph Curry in the NBA Finals this year. We might get to see Steph Curry versus LeBron and AD in the playoffs this year. It might happen, but it's not guaranteed from this point forward. Having these games with stakes with the generational stars playing at the same time. LeBron and Steph come from different generations. LeBron's obviously five years older than Steph Curry. He's either four or five years older than Steph Curry. I don't remember exactly what it is, but he's either four or five years older than Steph Curry. They come from different generations. LeBron was in his prime as Steph was beginning his career. LeBron was in the presumably back half of his prime, which was the best LeBron basketball that we had, which is from about 2010 until about 2015 was the prime of LeBron James. And then you have LeBron being a still generational star, but not as dominant as he was in the years past. That LeBron goes up against prime Steph Curry and ultimately prime Kevin Durant, who enter their primes at the same time, and by a perfect confluence of events that will never happen again, happen to play on the same team. And so LeBron James... And Stephen Curry are those generational players. And Kevin Durant is in the mix too. LeBron versus Kevin Durant battles. Historically great. And now as Kevin Durant and Steph Curry exit their primes, Giannis enters his prime. Anthony Davis enters his prime. Jokic, uh, Embiid. The guys who we regard as Hall of Famers from their generation are entering their primes slowly but steadily. But what's interesting about Steph Curry is that the record-breaking thing is usually reserved for old-timers of the sport. And Steph Curry is not at that point in his career yet. Steph Curry is maybe the front runner for MVP of the league this year. The Warriors have the best record in the sport, and he's the best player on the team. Not because Steph's game has aged magnificently gracefully, 
even though it will because of that shooting ability, it's because Steph Curry has just obliterated the three-point record in a way that I don't think we, we will see again and we see ever so rarely in sports as a whole. And the phenomenon we see so rarely is it's rare to know that you're living in a moment where you know you're never going to see something again. And this has happened multiple times with Steph Curry specifically. During that 2019 run between the Golden State Warriors and Toronto Raptors in the finals where Kevin Durant tears his Achilles, I talked about right after that when we were first starting the podcast and and before we had a podcast, just, you know, talking about it as a senior in high school, like, I don't know why everyone is rooting for the downfall of the Warriors or why everyone hates the Warriors because we're never going to see this again. We're never going to see basketball played exactly like this again. I don't know if it's the best basketball of all time. I've only been alive 20 years. It's by far the best basketball I've ever seen in my life. Probably will see for another 10 years. It, it's very difficult to gauge these things, but we're never. it's never going to look like that because Kevin Durant's skill set is so unique. And as we're starting to learn, Steph Curry's skill set is so unique. And this is something that I've pivoted on in the last two years. When we go back to when Steph Curry won his first MVP, which this might age some people, was seven years ago. Seven years ago, Steph Curry won his first MVP. When Steph won that first MVP, the thing that we talked about all the time was how this was the beginning of a Steph Curry generation, which was true. Steph Curry joined Kevin Durant at the mantle of being the generation's best player. We just didn't realize it at the time. We were like, oh, wow, this Warriors team is competing for championships with a sort of star in Steph Curry. And we did not realize Steph Curry was his generational's generation's special player right alongside Kevin Durant. Similarly to Shaq and Kobe, Uh, similarly to what LeBron James had by himself, like nobody could compete with LeBron because LeBron was that amazing. In the young generation right now, it's Luka and Zion. Those are the two players that five years from now are going to be competing for championships at the highest level against the players of the generation that will be old in five to seven years, which is Giannis, Anthony Davis, Jokic, Joel Embiid. Uh, You can name more people down the list. Devin Booker in that class of people. Devin Booker's having an awesome season. Just shout out to Devin Booker. I know we talked about that a little bit yesterday on on the Slump Buster pod takeover. But what I've pivoted on in the last two years is there is no Steph Curry generation. Steph Curry is not changing the game in the way we thought Steph Curry was going to change the game. And in its simplest fashion, the way we thought Steph Curry was going to change the game was Steph Curry was going to produce a ton of similar type Steph Currys. That Steph Curry's dominance was going to lead to a lot more Steph Currys. And honestly, if I looked at history better, I would have learned that that's probably not the case because by the time you get to the biggest level or the highest levels of basketball, the sport changes so quickly that you're not going to have every team having a Steph Curry type because not every team can have a Steph Curry type. You're going to have a couple of people who draw inspiration from Steph's game and win the one in a million or one in a billion lottery at being great at basketball with a certain skill set. But what Steph Curry produced from the Steph Curry generation, which we talked about at the time, like the, the people who really love Steph Curry's game, they were 12, 13, 
14 years old. These were the Steph Curry generation types. Those players grew up to play the new version of NBA basketball, but the new version of NBA basketball was going to happen with or without Steph Curry. An NBA with higher emphasis on three-pointers and higher emphasis on dunks, that was inevitably going to happen anyways. This wasn't like a new thing that Steph Curry started. This was already in motion years and years before because of the analytics revolution and money ball types. People were adjusting to shooting more three-pointers before Steph Curry came along. What Steph Curry does to the NBA is more so a perfect confluence of events, which is at a time where the three-point shot is being emphasized more and more because analytics suggest it's more important and, and better value, which it is, At the time, you're seeing more emphasis there on practicing three-pointers and shooting more three-pointers at higher volumes. You happen to have someone with that exact skill set and a a one-in-a-million ability entering the league. And Steph Curry took three or four years to get to that point, which I think was a byproduct of partially his injuries, but also it took the NBA that long to break down the barrier to shooting lots of threes. This was something that was inevitable and should have been going on for, you know, decades before. Like, just teams weren't taking advantage of it because of the rules of the league and how the ruled was, the league was governed and the access to analytics or really just the, the belief in analytics or being okay to do Moneyball-style rebuilds of teams where you, you dry, where your analysis is driven more by numbers than word of mouth or eye tests or things of these sorts. Which, again, was something inevitable. We just didn't have the technology to process hundreds of thousands of data points and then apply it to sports. And by getting that sample size, again, Moneyball happens in 2002. The NBA starts starts reinventing analytics departments in the late 2000s, moving into the 2010s. Steph Curry just breaks down the taboo. There's a great clip out there, and I should find it for this podcast, of Charles Barkley saying... In 2014, during the Warriors' first championship season, it was interesting. You know, I've been say, I've been on television for 16 years, and I've said the exact same thing for 16 years. I'm not big on jump shooting teams. And the one year you guys have a terrific season, you think that y'all took it personally. The teams aren't going small; they just need quality big men. And that that's a take that Charles Barkley has been laughed at for like five years of being totally wrong about seeing the game change in front of him, and it wasn't as wrong as we thought it was. I think we all kind of jumped the gun on that one a little quickly, where the league didn't change in that way. We, th- I thought there was going to be a Steph Curry generation where we could point to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven examples of players like Steph Curry, but what's so interesting about the highest levels of basketball is that at a certain point, you have to win a lottery of just having a chance to make it to the NBA that at a certain point these things filter themselves out because the next part Charles Barkley says happens to be truer than we thought back in 2015 what the what the Golden State Warriors did was terrific but I don't think you're gonna see a bunch of well if you can get guards like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson you got a better chance to play a small ball but I don't think the NBA all of a sudden is gonna have a bunch of three-point shooters and uh, playing a bunch of small lineups and Charles was more correct 
than we initially thought he was. With time, he's proven more and more correct, especially as we look at the generation post-Steph Curry, that you could argue if a lot of 12, 13, and 14-year-olds are getting really invested in Steph Curry, then they would be entering 18, 19 at this time in the league. Maybe the wheels of change were already in motion for Anthony Davis, for uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, for... Joel Embiid for Nikola Jokic like maybe the wheels of motion were already in place there but if we want to look to the generation after Steph Curry it's Luka Doncic who does not play the Steph Curry style of game it is Zion a big it is LaMelo Ball who does not play that same game. It's Anthony Edwards, who plays more of a Kevin Durant, Kobe Bryant style than even Steph Curry. And then you get to Trey Young. And Trey Young is the one person you can grab on into and say, that is the child of the Steph Curry generation. That is a guy who can win an MVP four or five years from now. That is the person we grab onto and say, that is the golden child of the Steph Curry generation. And maybe it's going to take even more time to get to that place of people playing the Steph Curry game. And Damian Lillard uh, goes into this as well, because Damian Lillard took advantage of the change in the league, and he came into the league at a perfect time, you know, out of Weber State. Damian Lillard was drafted at a perfect time in the NBA where the taboo of shooting three-pointers was changing in the sport. And so you're starting to see this change ever so slightly. And it looks like it's not coming from this generation of NBA stars. And to a certain point, it's that nobody is Steph Curry. Steph Curry was so was a perfect confluence of events. The experience of Steph Curry was a perfect confluence of events that at a changing time in the sport, he also happened to be the greatest shooter we have ever seen by volume, so much so that he is obliterating 20-year careers. Ray Allen had to grapple and fight to stay in the NBA just to break the all-time record. Reggie Miller played 20 years in the NBA. Steph Curry's going to shatter their records by seven and eight years in his career if he so chooses to play that long. Like, if Steph Curry wants to play until he's 41, like Reggie Miller close to Ray Allen, who I think played until he was 39. If he wants to do that, Steph Curry can obliterate the all-time record such to a point that nobody is going to touch him, even in the current generations of three-point shooting at volume, because the NBA is evolving in the other direction. The NBA is evolving to higher-paced offenses, but offenses built around super-skilled fives or seven-footers that play like Kevin Durant. Seven footers who happen to play at the the de facto center position on defense. That's the change in the sport is that the Kevin Durant body types are more changing when you look at who the superstars of the sport are than even Stephen Curry. And at the same time, the sport is evolving because you have Giannis Antetokounmpo types, because you have big bodied people like Ben Simmons who can play games similar to LeBron James. This is where you see the pivot in the sport. Jason Tatum, you start to see a pivot in the sport. And they're not quite Steph Curry's, but they're still shooting threes at higher volume. But none of those people are ever going to be what that was in a moment in time. And we're learning that now is that it was not the magnitude of what Steph Curry had. It was the quality of what Steph Curry had in terms of influencing a generation. And maybe we have to wait 
another five years to be proven right on this. But I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen at this point. Because after Trey Young, who can you point to that plays the Steph Curry style of basketball from either the one or the two position? Like you could point to maybe Terry Rozier to a certain extent. Or you can point to Marcus Howard in college changing the game because he led college basketball in scoring back in 2019, but he doesn't have a huge NBA future with the Denver Nuggets. The Steph Curry generation is looking more and more like it was a moment in time thing. And this tonight is going to be something that reflects that Steph Curry shattering that record this early in his career. And if he wants to keep playing, because again, Steph Curry, we've talked about this before, gave up the chance to be Michael Jordan. Gave up the chance. Under Armour in 2015 sold more shoes than Nike did back, in, or more dollars adjusted for inflation than Nike did in 1986. Gave up the chance to to be Michael Jordan, mercenary influencer, in order to have a life and have Kevin Durant come into that team and create what that Warriors team was. Gave it up to have a more balanced life. Maybe Steph Curry chooses not to be mercenary basketball figure who breaks the record by seven years and makes it a totally untouchable record. I'm not saying Steph's going to retire in the next couple of years, and I'm not saying that record already feels untouchable. The fact he's breaking it in the middle of his age 33 season with possibly seven years left to go in his career just to match what Allen Iverson, I'm sorry, not Allen Iverson, Ray Allen and Reggie Miller did, two Hall of Fame basketball players, that's how the NBA changed right in front of our eyes and the magnitude of what Steph Curry is is a moment in time because Steph Curry happened to be one of the great volume shooters of all time learning at the helm of his dad every single day in a shooting form one of the great shooters in the history of the NBA being your father learning to shoot from that early age and having that shooting coach then taking it a step further across years of basketball evolution and entering the league at the exact perfect time that the NBA was 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 learning about the analytical math of three-pointers and shooting them at higher volumes but defenses and teams hadn't quite adjusted their roster constructions to guard such a player that perfect confluence of events leads to Steph Curry one of the great players in the history of the sport obliterating a, a pretty significant record by NBA standards like a three-point all-time points all-time three-pointers made is a fairly significant record, like similar to what you think of like the receiving record or the rushing record in the NFL or the RBI record in baseball or Ricky Henderson and the stolen base record. It's not the big one, but it's still a fairly significant stat. And Steph Curry obliterated it. And it's rare that you live in a moment where you see something that you know is just total domination in a way that has never, ever been seen before. And maybe it influences a generation in a certain way where maybe Trey Young is the guy who breaks Allen Iverson's record. But we're not even seeing like 15-year careers made playing the Steph Curry game other than Trey Young at this point in the game. And maybe that'll change with more classes coming in and more members of the Steph Curry generation. But at the same time, it's starting to feel more like this was a magical spark that is really, really hard to replicate, surprisingly harder to replicate than seven-foot Kevin Durant shooting at the volume that he does. Because I see a lot of people who play Kevin Durant style of games in the NBA now. I listed a bunch of them real quickly, whether it's Brandon Ingram, Anthony Edwards, 
over there in Minnesota coming into the league. Uh, even Giannis, to a certain extent, from the mid-range. Anthony Davis being a, a center type, who not even in the mold of Kevin Durant. Like, for some reason, you're seeing that evolve more, and three-pointers as a whole being volume shots, but not all the way working through a Steph Curry offense, the way Steph Curry's dominated basketball for the last seven years. And two years ago, I would have been quite wrong. If you would have told me that the Steph Curry generation would actually look more like the Kevin Durant generation, I would have thought that was crazy because per capita, there's a lot more people that look like Steph Curry in the world than people who look like Kevin Durant in the world. And yet, once you filter all of that out for just the one in a million or one in 10 million chance of being an NBA player or having the physical skill set to be an NBA player, it filters out a lot of the Stephen Curry's. And I did not think that was going to happen. I thought we were going to see more Trey Youngs. Maybe not like at the top of their generation, but the fact that one out of 10 in this generation, this first new generation of the post-Steph Curry generation entering the NBA, the fact that one out of 10 look like Steph Curry in terms of like the future Hall of Famers from their generation, it's kind of weird. Didn't think that was going to happen. They look a lot more like Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum, who don't play like Kevin, Dur- who aren't Kevin Durant sized, but play Kevin Durant type of games. And I just didn't think that would be the case. I didn't think that Steph Curry wouldn't change the game in a dramatic fashion. At least four years ago, or two, three, four years ago, at least I thought that's where we were headed. And now I don't think so as much. And part of that is being reflective on just how dominant. Steph Curry is and how in a moment in time we're living through a moment where we recognize we're never going to see that again we're never going to see seven years ahead of the previous NBA records it's just not going to happen not because there's only so many generational talents but there are generational talents that happen to come in a league at an exact perfect time New sponsor alert here on the Take It Easy podcast, it is Lightbox Jewelry. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, Lightbox Jewelry has cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds that you can find at a light price of just $800 per carat. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox Diamonds. Never a dull moment. So I wanted to talk about this story on Philip Adams. And Philip Adams is a former corner in the NFL who back in April of 2021 uh, killed six people in South Carolina and then killed himself. And this story didn't get the same traction that I thought a story of this scope would, because this is a tragedy in mass proportion to, like, America. This is a story that, in this context, with or without an NFL athlete being at the helm, is a fairly seismic story. Maybe not national news, unless it has a perfect confluence of events that captures the the emotions of some people like a, a hate crime or a mass killing that just kills more people but at the same time this is like a more national story regardless of who the gunman is which brings us to 
a conversation that we had a couple weeks ago about Deshaun Watson, Henry Ruggs, and Dalvin Cook, which is when we're talking about stories that society as a whole does not value, or at least does not value to a magnitude where they there's a there's a need to institute dramatic change, and the story is a story because of who the 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 famous person involved is, and Deshaun Watson, Henry Ruggs, and Dalvin Cook are more famous people than Philip Adams in this case, but with Deshaun Watson, uh, this is something I bring up in all of these contexts, which is one victim or one death is a tragedy. 10,000 deaths is a statistic. One victim of sexual assault is a tragedy, and talking about 24 becomes a statistic. When we're talking about the Henry Ruggs case, one death by uh, drunk driving and driving 120 miles per hour in a 30 zone while a person burns alive in their car, that's a real tragedy with real victims and real grieving involved. And it's important to show empathy in these contexts the same way it's really important to show empathy to the real women in the Deshaun Watson case. And when we're talking about 11,000 deaths by drunk driving, according to the NHT, National Traffic and Highway, National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration statistics. If you go back and find the episode that we did on Henry Ruggs, we list the the full statistics. If you want to see them over the last five years, when we're talking about eleven thousand deaths, that is more of a tragedy, or that is a statistic. One is a tragedy, eleven thousand is a statistic. Which brings us to the Philip Adams case, which is you have uh, two elderly practitioners, their two grandchildren, and two HVAC uh, patients being killed by Philip Adams, who had uh, degenerative brain disease and had, according to the, the doctor after the fact, Dr. Ann McKee, who examines CTE and examined this case specifically, was talking about how, quote, there were inklings that he developed clear behavioral and cognitive issues. I don't think he snapped. It appeared to be a cumulative progressive impairment. He was getting increasingly paranoid. He was having increasingly dif- increasing difficulties with his memory. And he was very likely having more and more impulsive behaviors. It may not have been recognized, but I doubt that this was entirely out of the blue. And again, this is a doctor who doesn't know the context behind this. And a lot of this has been confirmed by family in the aftermaths of the report that, yeah, he was becoming more disassociative. Uh, He was having more impulsive breakouts and, and situations like this. They've talked about this and how he ends up today being diagnosed with second stage CTE, which is, by the way, for context here, this is from the ESPN story on this. Um, the, there are majority of NFL players who have died and were, have their brains evaluated in their twenties and thirties. Most had stage two CTE like Adams. The disease has four stages with stage four being the most severe and usually associated with dementia. The second stage is associated with progressive cognitive and behavioral abnormalities, such as aggression, aggression, impulsivity, explosivity, depression, paranoia, anxiety, poor executive function, and memory loss, which Adams diagnoses very similarly to Aaron Hernandez's situation. And in the case of, uh, oh, sorry, McKee diagnoses it similarly to the uh, Aaron Hernandez case. And Adams was uh, unusually severe 
in the front. And what's interesting is that even the Aaron Hernandez case, which ultimately was three murders and all of them while he was actively an NFL player, which creates a different... And, by the way, Aaron Hernandez, a well-known figure in the sport. Aaron Hernandez has this, and it becomes a podcast series, a documentary. We're talking about it as the story of the year in 2013. And this case didn't really get very much attention because the perpetrator was not as famous as, say, an O.J. Simpson. And it brings up conversations about gun control that we as a, we as a country, some people would like to have, and we as a country have decided we don't care about. The same way we don't care about drunk driving enough to change the statistics. Because when we were talking about Henry Ruggs, one of the things we pointed out was that the drunk driving statistics uh, for deaths at the result of drunk driving have been fairly consistent over the past five years. It was between 10,000 and 11,000 every single year between 2015 and 2019. Again, 2020 changes it with COVID. They don't have the data yet. If you want to see that data... Again, uh, go back to the episode on Henry Ruggs uh, that we did back in, I think it was early November, was the Henry Ruggs story. Just scroll through the podcast feed to find the data that we have on it. And so it's fairly consistent, which means there isn't like proactive measures being taken to address this. And with gun control, one of the things that I kind of say myself in this conversation is when we have, you know, 20 preschoolers getting gunned down at Sandy Hook Elementary School and we're not doing anything, at that point we've decided that this is not an issue worth pressing further or that the propaganda and legislation of uh, propaganda of the NRA and uh, lobbying in Congress has gotten to such a significant point that you're fighting too hard with too many resources in the uh, gun industry and people who want to protect gun ownership that you're just not going to make significant change. Not for good or bad, it's just you're not going to have any change. We've decided that this is not an issue that we'd like to pursue further. And so maybe part of that is propaganda wings deciding we don't want to have another gun control debate around a Philip Adams murder or a Philip Adams mass shooting, which by the way, could have been a larger conversation because Philip Adams is a relatively famous perpetrator involved in this case. The reason we're talking about this is because it's a story on ESPN. Even if Philip Adams has an unremarkable NFL career, the fact that NFL that playing in the NFL and playing football starts the chain of events that leads to this murder or to this mass killing is something that is interesting because it puts a microcosm on society as we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. So now that we've had this macro point of view on this, I want to bring it into the micro for a little bit and make this more of a sports specific conversation because we have, by the fact that we didn't cover this story more on a societal basis, because it, it it's a story that could have grappled society as a large at, at large longer than even a one day conversation. It could have happened, and the perpetrator being someone of relative fame, being a former NFL player, is something that could have started a larger conversation again about gun control and about. Uh, CTE brain damage on an NFL level and started a conversation about how we treat the mentally uh, unhealthy in our society, which again can be politicized. We've had this conversation many times. I don't know if it would have changed anything, but it would have furthered along a conversation and forced people to either backpedal to points they were at before or force people to kind of rethink and reinvent the ways they think about this issue. 
We've had it many times before. There will be more situations that spark this conversation again, similarly to how we talk about police brutality. We've had the conversations before. Most people know where they stand. At this point, it's about changing opinions, and time and context will change, and people changing will change their opinions on some of these things. Might take a long time, but with enough time, people's opinions will change, usually for the more progressive. But these things swing back and forth sometimes. Sometimes uh, we become more conservative in our conversation. Sometimes we become more progressive. It works both ways every now and then. So maybe Philip Adams had a chance on a macro level to, to have sports be a little bit of a beacon to shine a light on society in that way. The same way Henry Ruggs shines a light on drunk driving, which is a larger issue, 10 to 11,000 deaths in the last year. But it also it makes a micro level conversation the same way Deshaun Watson starts a conversation in sports that reflects society the same way Bill Cosby has a conversation in entertainment that shines the light on society the way Me Too has a conversation in Hollywood and movies that shines a light on society at large which is we do not protect women from abuse in workplaces we do not protect women in professional settings from the sexual advances of men and the predatory behaviors of men and there's no accountability system for women or there's not a good enough accountability system in some cases there's no accountability system but there's not a good enough accountability system to protect women who are victims of this situation hence the fact that one in every four women will be victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault no not sexual harassment more than 25 25 will be victims of sexual harassment in their lifetime one in four and we don't do a good enough job this is what deshaun watson and bill cosby shine and the me too movement shine a light on same way it shines a light on that the same way Philip Adams shines a light on how we treat the mentally unwell, uh, unwell in America and how we legislate gun control in America so that someone with uh, declining mental health and potentially, uh, well, now we know today, chronic <laughs> brain disease is able to access a gun and go kill six people in South Carolina, including two children and two elderly people and two HVAC, HVAC patients. And on a micro level... It's interesting how football t- or how we as fo- as sports fans talk about CTE now because in moments where we have tragedy and not statistics we've talked about this on a macro level about statistics and gun control and converse and how we didn't choose how we we shine a light on society at large we've talked about this in more of a statistical basis so now I want to take this and bring it into a more micro conversation not just micro about sports fandom as a whole and the sports community as a whole, but also as a conversation about tragedy, about this specific tragedy with real victims and real grieving being involved in this. We've talked about this from the macro. Now let's bring it to the micro. When we have situations of unspeakable tragedy or when tragedy strikes and it's really emotional based, It can be incomprehensible to people. Not that there's any shame in this. Like, I'm not trying to phrase it as a way that this is like a bad thing that's incomprehensible, that we can't process this. It's just a a, a state of being. It's very normal. Grief is a very normal thing in tragedy. Uh, we, We talk about empathy and having empathy for people going through tragedy. That's a very real, normal feeling. And when it seems like there is a senseless act that goes on, which literally means without sense, 
when there is something that we cannot process with sense, anger and rage is one of those emotions that begins to build up. It's part of the grief process. Sadness is an emotion of this sort that, that processes differently for people. People go through grief in different ways because it's, it's all the human condition. We all react in different ways to different events and that's totally okay. All of us are different people with different processing abilities and some of us process our emotions with different, you know, feelings. And again, this is even more simplistic myself. They're just saying some people process with anger. Some people process with sadness, disappointment, um, numbing because you don't want to deal with your emotions, which leads to addiction, um, pushing away people who care about you or having open, transparent conversations. People process things differently. And these are just human conditions. This is not to say for good or for bad. When we have things that don't make sense, it's hard to process them. Some people go to therapy. Some people internalize it. All of these work different ways. People come to different outcomes and people have different qualities of life as they try and process things that cannot be comprehended because we cannot understand everything. And so as people process tragedy, one of the ways most commonly most commonly to deal with tragedy is scapegoating which is taking your blame and putting it onto something or someone and it's it's go like (laughs) they reference scapegoating all the way back to the bible and they talk about this uh as a phenomenon where you would literally take goats and put all your blame on it and then throw it off a cliff. And then that would take your blame. Uh, even the story in Christianity is that Jesus becomes the scapegoat for your sins. In, in essence, it's one of the ways that people cope and process with wrongdoings and things that don't make sense. Which in the case of the Bible, how does someone just give up their life and just you say, yeah, I will die. And you guys can all, I will be the, the bearer of your sins, basically. I will be the bearer of things that you cannot process. I will be your scapegoat. You, I, I will give you forgiveness. I will be your scapegoat. I will take all of the negative and I will throw it onto myself and I will be your scapegoat. And scapegoating is a way that we, we process tragedy all the time. Um, the, the most common fa- uh, version of this in sports retold all the time is Steve Bartman. Steve Bartman was a scapegoat. He was uh, taken as a, a magnification of the Cubs curse and they put all of their hatred and blame like this guy is is the person we can blame for our hundred years of sadness. Bill Buckner, same thing, ends up dying, reconciling his scapegoating with the, the Boston Red Sox after they win a championship, but for 18 years ruined his life. Near Hall of Fame MLB career, life ruined because he scapegoated for game six of the 1986 World Series. If you don't know Bill Buckner, just Google Bill Buckner. It'll tell you exactly, first line, what Bill Buckner is scapegoated for. Uh, he died recently, but he got the, he got a little bit of the, the reconciliation. Steve Bartman has not gotten the reconciliation. Maybe he's reconciled it with himself. Uh, the Cubs asked him to be a part of the ceremony after 2016, declined. Uh, do not know if he's been to Wrigley Field. That was Steve Bartman's way of processing his <laughs> becoming a scapegoat. And so for the family, the, for families in tragedy, there's an easy scapegoat, which is the person who takes the life of a person in a mass killing. It's an easy scapegoat to find because it is literally the person who takes the life from the other person. In football, we have decided to use CTE as a scapegoat. 
now that we have the science and now that the NFL has acknowledged CTE is a problem and by the way has moved to shift the game to make it relatively safer for example did you see Jakeem Grant run that touchdown back on a punt first punt return touchdown of the entire season by Jakeem Grant because every punt now has been designed whether punter skill sets have changed whether the NFL has changed the rules around punting and the rules around kickoffs first punt return touchdown of the season in week 15 punt return is basically gone as a concept in the NFL kick returns are essentially gone as a concept because the NFL wants every single kick to start at the 25 yard line ideally or have kicks that don't make contact. Why? Because the CTE research suggests that kickoffs and punt returns in which there are violent collisions with people who have massive head starts and runs, those generate the highest levels of concussions. And so the repeated blows are going to be there in the NFL, but they're not in the same way they used to be. You're not seeing the same repeated blows to the head. You're leaning with your shoulder. You're blocking with your chest. You're blocking with your hands. You're blocking with your lower body. You don't see head-to-head collisions the same way it used to. On the offensive line, sure. You don't see headshots over the middle of the field when wide receivers come across. The NFL is legislating the game to minimize head injuries because it is important for the future success of the sport because the NFL was going through a real crisis with head injuries. It was costing the league hundreds of millions of dollars, not just in a lawsuit with former players, but also in public public, uh, scrutiny towards the league for denying science and covering up scientific research around how dangerous their sport is. This is not just an NFL problem. The NHL has similar problems, and UFC doesn't have a large enough data pool of athletes aging into their 50s and 60s to recognize that the sport has problems with CTE, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, pretty clear that the UFC is going to have problems with CTE in its future. Boxing has problems with CTE. Like, pretty clearly, repeated blows to the head, which happen in the UFC, and happen in hockey, and happen in football, and even happen to a certain extent in soccer, which is why soccer has legislated the, the header out of the sport and ages younger than, like, 16, They're trying to work that way in other sports. It's just very hard to get to that point where you have less and less headers. It takes time to slowly legislate things out of the sport and for the culture to naturally change as we have access to new information. The NFL has done a good deal of what they can given the information they have now. There just hasn't been new information in the last five to six years around CTE research. And so now that CTE has changed the game until we have access to new information the information we know about cte and head injuries led to 10 years of changes in the rules and the legislation and the culture of nfl football now that that's happened and it's no longer an emphasis and for five or six years we don't really have new information around cte cte is now transitioned to being used as a scapegoat mechanism Not for bad or for good, but it's just that it now is used as a scapegoat. It can be used in ways that seem kind of gross, like talking about, oh man, that dude's got some CTE as they're going through like real mental health issues like Philip Adams probably was, like former players who don't talk the same way that they used to, players that have cognitive impairments at age 35 and 36, 
like people going through real like mental health crises and degenerative brain disease and making fun of people with degenerative brain disease. Yeah, that that feels a little gross when we have those conversations and hear someone say that. Yeah, that feels really gross. But in the context that's less gross, where CTE uh, is used more as an explanatory scapegoat, I find interesting that that's the pivot we've made when talking about tragedy. Because I wanted to read the quote from the Leslie family, who, by the way, the Leslie family is uh, the family of the people who were uh, killed. Uh, or t- four of the five, four of the six people were members of the same family. So Robert Leslie and his wife Barbara were killed by Philip Adams. Two of their grandchildren, nine-year-old Ada and five-year-old Noah, were killed by Adams. And then the other two people were HVAC positions working at their home, at the the home of the Leslie family. Um, All six people die, four of them from the same family. And the Leslie family's statement on Adams' diagnosis today is, quote, even in the midst of a crushing heartbreak, we are finding some comfort in the CTE results and the explanation they provide for the irrational behaviors pertaining to this tragedy. The Adams family said they were not surprised that he had the disease, but were shocked to learn how severe his condition was. Quote, After going through medical records from his football career, we do know that he was desperately seeking help from the NFL, but was denied all claims due to his inability to remember things and to handle seemingly simple tasks, such as traveling hours away to see doctors and going through extensive evaluations. Which is crushing in and of itself. I think the NFL does a poor job in handling these things because they don't have an incentive to. The NFL's incentive is to make money. This is something that works on the other end of the spectrum for them because they have to deal with this CTE problem. They have to pay out research. There was a conversation last year about the NFL, uh, their data basically saying that black players had to have a higher rate of brain disease or higher levels of cognitive impairment than white players based on old-timey fuddy-duddy racism science. And that was something that they didn't correct because the NFL has no incentive to correct it until people hold them accountable for that situation because the NFL does not want to deal with the situation. They want to pay out the money and have a hands-off approach. This is why it's a problem when the NFL has to be the person who instigates this instead of a third party neutral from the NFL and the people trying to get money uh, and care from the NFL This is why it's really important that the NFL is a hands-off approach because if Philip Adams couldn't get any kind of care from the NFL in this case, that's a failure on the part of the NFL. And at the same time, it's something that's wholly expected when you put the NFL in charge of governing a, a system of paying out care to players and to, uh, former players and people who need care when the NFL has an incentive to try and save money in this case, because the NFL's incentive as a corporation is to save money. So all of that is disappointing in and of itself. But what it brings back to with the point of the family is that when it gives explanation and it gives uh, a level of ability to cope and ability to process the senseless, which in this case is through scapegoating potentially, or maybe it's just uh, uh, coming to terms with it uh, in the fact that this is an explanation for why this happened. It doesn't have to necessarily be scapegoating. It's just a conversation that whenever someone who dies young in the NFL has a case of this sorts, and part of this is because in the same context, CTE research only comes into the news 
when someone dies young. Because you can't diagnose CTE until someone dies, we can't examine brains until players die. And who are the players that are dying? People in their 20s, in their 30s, and their 40s, which is to say people who die because of some tragedy that might lead people to suspect that they have CTE. There may be cases like Demarius Thomas this week, which his death appears to not be CTE related, where they examine his brain to see what a long-term effects his brain had as a result of playing in the NFL. And at the same time, this uh, they said they examined 24 cases of former NFL players, and nearly all of them did have stage 2 CTE, some cases of stage 1 and some of stage 3, but mostly all uh, dealing with stage 2 CTE from repeated hits to the head playing football. And CTE is used in that context every now and then because the only time we've talked about it over the last four or five years is within the context of someone died and has been diagnosed with CTE, whether that's uh, Aaron Hernandez having that case happen, whether it was Junior Seau eight years ago, uh, Dave Duerson, I think was his name back in the days, Mike Webster, who originally found it 15, 20 years ago. Like the times that a player dies and they discover CTE in their brain is the time CTE comes up because there just hasn't been any new information and new research. With access to new information, we would change our parameters around this. We just haven't had that new information in the last five or six years. And so the evolution of not having new information in the last five or six years and the way that we cover CTE and brain damage only in death of players at young ages, so only in tragedy, the natural evolution of that is CTE becoming more of a scapegoat mechanism or a way of processing tragedy on a micro level. On a macro level, it's a case-by-case basis. In this case with Philip Adams, it is the conversation or lack thereof on a societal level about how we deal with people with degenerative brain issues, mental illness, and uh, gun control at the same time. All of that is a conversation that comes in based on this context, which is he dies uh, in a mass killing of six people that he orchestrates, a seventh being himself. All of that is a case-by-case basis that creates a larger conversation around that that reflects society at large, but it has nothing to do specifically with CTE. CTE on a macro level is something we talk about in sports as an explainer or a scapegoat for some form of tragedy, which is often an NFL player dying young or in three of the most public cases that we've ever seen, NFL players committing committing suicide after mass killings or mass tragedies, which the two that come to mind are Aaron Hernandez and this Philip Adams story. Because the other cases that come to mind in our discussion about CTE are Junior Seau committing suicide, Dave Duerson committing suicide, uh, Mike Webster committing suicide, players dying at young ages who then donate their brains that end up being evaluated along with the 24 brains, according to uh, Miss McKee of the CTE Research Center uh, in the article on ESPN, the 24 brains that have been analyzed of players in their 20s, 30s, and 40s dying at young ages and donating their brains to science overwhelmingly by suicide or some form of tragedy. And then in grander cases, Aaron Hernandez and now Philip Adams in not just themselves dying, but also killing other people 
in the process, which is a larger scale tragedy that, again, I guess we decided on this case we didn't want to have a macro level conversation or generate a macro level conversation around. We did it now here, but we're just a small podcast. We don't have any real influence over media and culture and starting long conversations. We can start conversations for 30 people, which you can continue, by the way, if you want to talk about this stuff, hit up comical sports memes on Instagram or take it easy podcast on Instagram. If you do want to have larger conversations, it'd be better to have a larger conversation with someone you know and show them this podcast. But for the two of you who do that, that's just having a conversation. That's just, you know, using my platform to talk about two people about this. It's not the same as giant media outlets being able to stimulate a conversation around a, a, a tragedy like Philip Adams. So thanks for stopping in today, everybody. I hope you have a fantabulous rest of your day. Take it easy, everybody. We will talk to you again tomorrow.